Welcome to Voices of Compassion, CHC's podcast series providing courage, connection, and compassion, highlighting topics that matter to our community, our parents, families, educators, and other professionals. I'm Cindy Lopez. Today's session is focused on kids and distance learning. With school at home, parents have a window into their child's learning and behavior that they've not had before. As a parent, you may have observed some behaviors that make you pause or cause concern. Listen to this podcast episode with Chris Harris, Chief Schools Officer at CHC, as he shares his expertise with you about what might be cause for concern and what is not. You'll walk away with ideas about possible next steps as you consider what is best for your child. Chris is also doing an Ask the Expert session live on the topic of returning to school at 4 p.m. on February 23rd, so you want to mark your calendars for that virtual live session. You can find out more or register at chconline.org slash community education. Chris, is there anything you'd like to add? My entire professional career has been working with kids who have special challenges. Previously, I have taught in schools that have youngsters with uh, specific learning differences. Um, I did that for 12 years, then I went into administration. My most recent jobs at CHC have been with uh, the Esther B. Clark School that I was the director of for 15 years, and I have just rejoined Sand Hill School about a year ago. So right now, and for the past year, parents really have had a front row seat to their kids' learning. So Chris, can you tell us about some of the things parents might be observing during distance learning that might be cause for concern or not? So one of the things uh, that parents might look for is not an acute logging off because all kids are getting Zoom exhausted these days. But if you watch your youngster consistently logging off or not engaged in a particular class, usually that's gonna be an English class or a math class. That might be something that you take note of. In fact, they'll probably tell you they hate the class and that's why they don't wanna be on it. But the fact of the matter is they hate the class because there's probably something that they can't do that they're being asked to do. So it's looking more at a pattern than it is on a one day deal where they're just exhausted and they don't feel like getting on. We have seen firsthand for sure that kids do experience Zoom fatigue and they need time in a mental health break from it. Um, and so I think we need, I do think we need to uh, respect that. Another area you might be concerned with parents is if a youngster actually chooses the assignments they do and consistently avoid doing a particular topic or a particular subject uh, assignment, and they're just not doing them, you know, and they're saying, well, they're not making it clear. You're, you're going to hear plethoras of reasons that they're not doing it. But you have to go to the default to say there's something that they can't do that they're being asked to do. And that's why they're using these avoidant behaviors. Third thing to keep track of that's important is looking at the onset of chronic sort of aches and pains like the headache and the stomach ache and the itchy eyes or, you know, the sudden need to go to the bathroom at the same time in the same class all the time. All of these can be what we call somatic responses. And they indicate that a youngster is feeling an elevated level of stress or anxiety about their own performance and their ability to perform competently enough in that class. This is a very classic anxiety and fear 
based response when kids are anxious, when they're having difficulty believing that they're going to be successful on an assignment because it gets them emotional relief if they're acknowledged for having those those pains. Yeah, so parents are looking for patterns of behavior than just kind of one-offs, so um, that's helpful. Also, I'm just wondering about parents who might be seeing more behavior challenges like outbursts. I guess that could be a result of Zoom fatigue or it could be a result of some kind of learning or social emotional challenge. Outbursts typically happen, Cindy, when people are pushing hard on something that the kids have already indicated more subtly they can't do. Outbursts are certainly indicators of a youngster who has tried to communicate typically that they can't do something and they haven't been heard or understood or believed or whatever. And so the next step is this more regressed behavior. And what we're trying to do here is look at what we call the antecedents, like what led up to that and what subtle indications were kids giving that they couldn't do something and still they were being plugged or prodded to do more of something they couldn't do. So Chris, talking about all these behaviors parents might be seeing, what can they do? What can they do if they're observing some of these behaviors with their kids? So the first thing that parents need to do is in fact track the behaviors that they're seeing on the youngster. If they've seen patterns, you know, logging off or shutting down or refusing to get into a class or not doing an assignment that they know has been assigned, tracking that data so a teacher can ultimately see that this is a consistent behavior with a pattern so my suggestion is that you really want to ask for a 30-minute consultation with that teacher offline or get or on zoom separately so that you can relate the issues that they're having and in that you want to do some problem solving with with the teacher is it too much can an assignment be modified can they use a different modality to be able to express back to the teacher what they're doing? Is there any flexibility for uh, a youngster to get some prescribed notes and so that they don't have to take notes over the computer if that's a struggle? So all of these kind of things are, are discussions with a teacher instead of just quickly going to, oh my goodness, my kid needs special education and let's jump to that. So that's the first step. Now, if the issues persist, and you've tried a couple of discussions you know with the teacher you've agreed upon some accommodations or some adjustments that can be made and it's not having any impact then you might want to consider a more formal assessment if you're in an independent school you're probably going to be looking for a private assessment and children's health council um, has that service available where we can do a full-scale psychological educational battery of testing if you're in the public school, you may want to uh, petition the special education director. You have to do that in writing, uh, requesting an assessment for your youngsters to see if they are eligible and needing of public school special education services. So I'd start there. I, I think that's really important. And the input that parents have and the data they can share with teachers before you even go to this more formal level, I would really recommend because those negotiations can sometimes actually keep a youngster engaged and involved in their mainstream class instead of having to go to such an alternate route. There are excellent alternate routes, incidentally, but if you're committed to 
wanting your youngster to remain in a mainstream setting, go with the discussions with your teacher first. So just to piggyback too on something that you referenced. So here at CHC, we we do, as Chris mentioned, a psychological educational evaluation for students. We also have free 30-minute consultations for parents, and that might be another place to start if you're having concerns but not sure about next steps. So Chris, you referenced special ed. And so if students have received an evaluation, they've already been assessed or they have an IEP, individual education plan comes out of the public school system. As a parent, how do I know that my student is getting what they need in the distance learning process if they already have the evaluation? So let's start with the public school sector because that's the easier, easier one to describe. So if the youngster has an IEP, there is a clearly depicted service page, which exhibits the frequency and duration of the special education services they are to receive. So the easiest thing for parents to document and, and monitor is, are they receiving those as are on the IEP? That's actually a legally binding part of the IEP that those youngsters are receiving those services. So for example, really simply, if they are to receive 30 minutes a week of occupational therapy, then the parent should know the day and the time that that is scheduled and that the youngster is logged on and getting ready for that system and the occupational therapist is present on the Zoom and providing that service for the 30 minutes each week. Then, of course, a key part of the IEP are the goals. One of the things at CHC and both at Esther B. Clark School and at Sand Hill School, even that's called a personalized plan, we tend to be very cautious about how many goals we're asking kids to address. And so if you have an IEP that has 15 goals, you know, it's probably worth having a discussion with the special education teacher or the people who are responsible for administering that to prioritize those so that you as the monitoring parent and the youngster who's trying to, you know, improve their performance in school have what we call chewable bite, which is usually between three, maybe four, rarely five goals that everybody is working on because you prioritize those as having the biggest bang for the buck. So for example, if a youngster is really having oral language expressive problems and there is some speech therapy goals to help youngsters be able to communicate with peers more successfully. And the 15th goal is Billy's not putting periods at the end of sentences. You probably want to emphasize the social skills that the youngster needs to sustain friendships and say, let's put the periods and the capital letters aside for a little while so that we work on the things that are going to be A, more important for the youngster in terms of long success, and B, will give you a bigger bang for them uh, in terms of making progress. So that's the public side. On the private side, typically the psych ed batteries reports that I see will have a diagnosis. And so it could be attention deficit disorder. You might see dyslexia, you might see disorder of written language. And those are informative, but they actually don't tell you what you need to do. So in the next part of the report, typically the, the psychometrist or the, the team that's done the testing um, lists recommendations. And just like the IEP goals, one of the things that we have to be careful about is how many recommendations can practically be applied so again, here, I think you want to take a look at those recommendations, ideally with the teacher who's going to be doing most of the teaching 
and say, you know, which top five do we agree upon would be the ones that we want to pay the most attention to, that we want to develop a plan for addressing. And then as things get resolved, you replace it with one more. But, you know, I, I think for any teacher to think that they're going to manage 15 IEP goals or 30 recommendations and have anything actually tangibly transpire is actually not feasible. Ideally, too, the top priorities that you have would have some measure of outcome. So parents and teachers and, and even our students alike would be able to see that they're making progress, that there's some kind of data that goes along with looking at those recommendations and or IEP goals that would help youngsters see and parents see that they're actually making tangible progress. Thank you for tuning in. Just a note before we continue on with today's episode, we hope you're following us on social media so you don't need to wait a whole week between episodes to get engaging, inspiring, and educational content from CHC. Our social handles are linked on our podcast webpage at podcasts.chconline.org. What are some alternatives if students are not being successful? So for example, I mean, one alternative might be a school like Sandhill School. You know, Sandhill School, specialized school here at CHC, designed especially for kids with learning and attention challenges. Obviously, that's, that's one option on kind of one end of the continuum. There are probably several and just wondering if you could talk a little bit with parents or with our listeners about what those alternatives might be. Sure. So, you know, taking a youngster out of a school and changing them, especially into a special school, is a very significant decision for parents. If the child who's struggling academically has a very solid group of friends that sustain, that are reliable, that the youngster feels great about, that are always there for support, and or they're involved in extracurricular activities, we need to be careful about taking kids out of those environments where they actually feel a sense of belongingness and are thriving in that aspect as hard as academics may be. So what, what I oftentimes talk to parents about is it's when the youngster begins to feel ostracized or neglected or ignored or their friends are disappearing on them or they can't find a niche to socialize and so they find themselves by themselves a lot. So losing the sense of community and belongingness in a school environment is a serious red flag. And so alternative schools are set up because they specialize in working with youngsters who have particular kinds of challenges. Like for example, uh, the Oak School up in Marin works with youngsters with autism and at Sand Hill and Charles Armstrong, we work with youngsters who have specific language learning differences. At Esther B. Clark, they're working with youngsters who have emotional dysregulation issues. And what happens is that these youngsters could find like peers who have all the talents and attributes that they possess and haven't been able to be realized or nurtured while also seeing youngsters who are having the same kinds of struggles in the classroom. And in these kind of schools, you have then very specifically trained specialists. And so a youngster who feels like nobody understands, understands them come face to face with both peers and teachers who do understand that youngster. And so we can restore in these schools the sense of belongingness and community and inclusion 
that these youngsters are desperate for and want their school experience to include. So thanks so much for spending some time with us today, Chris, and sharing your insights and expertise with us. I'm wondering if there was one thing that you hope our listeners would take away from this episode, what would that be? Actually, I haven't used the word yet, but I'm going to use the word patience. We talked about how you can track and observe your youngsters and look for patterns and trends. We've talked about how you can take steps, incremental steps towards improving your youngsters' engagement and success and uh, positive feelings about school, even in distance learning. And all of this takes time. There's no quick answer. And just to put it out there, this pandemic is not going to suddenly be over and we're going to be back to normal. There will inevitably be social, academic, and psychological factors that linger past whenever we define the pandemic as being over. And so we're going to have to be patient with people and patient with our kids, patient with ourselves, and even patient with the people that we're trying to access in terms of testing and the teachers. Because I... I just want to end by saying this. Nobody's not doing the very best they know how to do with the information we have right now. It may change in a week, but everybody's doing the best they can with what they've got in the moment. And so I'm asking people to be patient. Doesn't mean you're not persistent. It doesn't mean you back out. It just means things aren't going to happen immediately. And we need to understand that. Yeah, thank you for that reminder. And as you talk about patience, I'm also reminded of compassion. That was, yes. We've talked a lot about that, obviously, on our Voices of Compassion podcast series. Compassion for your child, trying to, you know, just understand kind of more the functions of the behavior, like why are they doing that? If they could, they would, right? And also some self-compassion. There's always a can't behind a won't. And I think that's one of the things I also want to leave people with is when kids won't do something, usually there's a component underneath there, which is a can't, and they don't want to embarrass themselves or disappoint anybody, including themselves. And so it's a won't. Thank you. And if you'd like to find out more about an option like Sandhill School at Children's Health Council, it might be a viable option for your child. If you're interested, please sign up for a free, no-obligation tour of Sandhill, all virtual, at 9 o'clock on Thursday mornings. And you can find a link on our podcast website to get you to sign up for that tour. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. And to our listeners, thank you as well. Thanks so much. Find us online at podcasts chconline.org. Also, please follow us on our socials. Find us on Facebook at chc.paloalto and Twitter and Instagram at chc underscore Palo Alto. You can also visit our YouTube channel at chc online Palo Alto and we are on LinkedIn. Subscribe to Voices of Compassion on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast apps and sign up for our virtual village email list so you never miss an update or an episode. I always love to hear from you, so send me an email or voice memo at podcasts at chconline.org or leave us a rating and review. We look forward to you tuning in each week. After all, we are in this together. See you next week.